Section 37 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 1, Part 1. Revolt 1. Shifting Sands free he felt that he was free free of others and of himself the network of passion in which he had been enmeshed for more than a year had suddenly been burst asunder how he did not know the filaments had given before the growth of his being it was one of those crises of growth in which robust natures tear away the dead casing of the year that is past the old soul in which they are cramped and stifled Christophe breathed deeply, without understanding what had happened. An icy whirlwind was rushing through the great gate of the town as he returned from taking Gottfried on his way. The people were walking with heads lowered against the storm. Girls going to their work were struggling against the wind that blew against their skirts. They stopped every now and then to breathe, with their nose and cheeks red, and they looked exasperated and as though they wanted to cry he thought of that other torment through which he had passed he looked at the wintry sky the town covered with snow the people struggling along past him he looked about him into himself he was no longer bound he was alone alone how happy to be alone to be his own what joy to have escaped from his bonds from his torturing memories from the hallucinations of faces that he loved or detested. What joy at last to live, without being the prey of life, to have become his own master. He went home white with snow. He shook himself gaily like a dog. As he passed his mother, who was sweeping the passage, he lifted her up, giving little inarticulate cries of affection, such as one makes to a tiny child. Poor old Louisa struggled in her son's arms, she was wet with the melting snow, and she called him with a jolly laugh, a great gaby. He went up to his room three steps at a time. He could hardly see himself in his little mirror, it was so dark. But his heart was glad. His room was low and narrow, and it was difficult to move in it, but it was like a kingdom to him. He locked the door and laughed with pleasure. At last he was finding himself. How long he had been gone astray! He was eager to plunge into thought like a bather into water. It was like a great lake afar off melting into the mists of blue and gold. After a night of fever and oppressive heat, he stood by the edge of it, with his legs bathed in the freshness of the water, his body kissed by the wind of a summer morning. He plunged in and swam. He knew not whither he was going, and did not care. It was joy to swim whithersoever he listed. He was silent, then he laughed, and listened for the thousand, thousand sounds of his soul. It swarmed with life. He could make out nothing. His head was swimming. He felt only a bewildering happiness. He was glad to feel in himself such unknown forces, and indolently postponing putting his powers to the test, he sank back into the intoxication of pride in the inward flowering which, held back for months, 
now burst forth like a sudden spring. His mother called him to breakfast. He went down. He was giddy and light-headed as though he had spent a day in the open air, but there was such a radiance of joy in him that Louisa asked what was the matter. He made no reply. He seized her by the waist and forced her to dance with him round the table on which the tureen was steaming. Out of breath, Louisa cried that he was mad. Then she clasped her hands. "'Dear God,' she said anxiously, "'sure he is in love again.' Christophe roared with laughter. He hurled his napkin into the air. "'In love?' he cried. "'Oh, Lord, but no, I've had enough. You can be easy on that score.' That is done, done forever. Oof! He drank a glassful of water. Louisa looked at him reassured, wagged her head, and smiled. That's a drunkard's pledge, she said. It won't last until tonight. Then the day is clear gain, he replied good-humouredly. Oh, yes, she said. But what has made you so happy? I am happy, that is all. Sitting opposite her, with his elbows on the table, he tried to tell her all that he was going to do. She listened with kindly skepticism, and gently pointed out that his soup was going cold. He knew that she did not hear what he was saying, but he did not care. He was talking for his own satisfaction. They looked at each other smiling, he talking, she hardly listening. Although she was proud of her son, she attached no great importance to his artistic projects. She was thinking, he is happy, that matters most. While he was growing more and more excited with his discourse, he watched his mother's dear face, with her black shawl tightly tied round her head, her white hair, her young eyes that devoured him lovingly, her sweet and tranquil kindliness. He knew exactly what she was thinking. He said to her jokingly, "'It is all one to you, eh? You don't care about what I'm telling you?' she protested weakly. "'Oh, no! Oh, no!' He kissed her. "'Oh, yes! Oh, yes! You need not defend yourself. You are right. Only love me. There is no need to understand me, either for you or for anybody else. I do not need anybody or anything now. I have everything in myself.' "'Oh,' said Louisa, "'another maggot in his brain. "'But if he must have one, "'I prefer this to the other.' "'What sweet happiness to float on the surface "'of the lake of his thoughts! "'Lying in the bottom of a boat "'with his body bathed in sun, "'his face kissed by the light fresh wind "'that skims over the face of the waters, "'he goes to sleep. "'He is swung by threads from the sky, "'under his body lying at full length, under the rocking boat, he feels the deep swelling water. His hand dips into it. He rises, and with his chin on the edge of the boat, he watches the water flowing by as he did when he was a child. He sees the reflection of strange creatures darting by like lightning. More, and yet more. They are never the same. He laughs at the fantastic spectacle that is unfolded within him. He laughs at his own thoughts. He has no need to catch and hold them. Select? Why select among so many thousands of dreams? There is plenty of time. Later on, he has only to throw out a line at will to draw in the monsters whom he sees gleaming in the water. He lets them pass. Later on. 
The boat floats on at the whim of the warm wind and the insentient stream. All is soft, sun, and silence. At last, languidly, he throws out his line. Leaning out over the lapping water, he follows it with his eyes until it disappears. After a few moments of torpor, he draws it in slowly. As he draws it in, it becomes heavier. Just as he is about to fish it out of the water, he stops to take a breath. He knows that he has his prey. He does not know what it is. He prolongs the pleasure of expectancy. At last he makes up his mind. Fish with gleaming many-colored scales appear from the water. They writhe like a nest of snakes. He looks at them curiously. He stirs them with his finger, but hardly has he drawn them from the water than their colors fade and they slip between his fingers. He throws them back into the water and begins to fish for others. He is more eager to see one after another all the dreams stirring in him than to catch at any one of them. They all seem more beautiful to him when they are freely swimming in the transparent lake. He caught all kinds of them, each more extravagant than the last. Ideas had been heaped up in him for months, and he had not drawn upon them, so that he was bursting with riches. But it was all higgledy-piggledy. His mind was a babel, an old Jew's curiosity shop in which there were piled up in the one room rare treasures, precious stuffs, scrap iron, and rags. He could not distinguish their values. Everything amused him. There were thrilling chords, colors which rang like bells, harmonies which buzzed like bees, melodies smiling like lovers' lips. There were visions of the country, faces, passions, souls, characters, literary ideas, metaphysical ideas. There were great projects, vast and impossible, tetralogies, decologies, pretending to depict everything in music, covering whole worlds, and most often there were obscure flashing sensations, called forth by a trifle, the sound of a voice, a man or a woman passing in the street, the pattering of rain, an inward rhythm. Many of these projects advanced no further than their title. Most of them were never more than a note or two. It was enough. Like all very young people, he thought he had created what he dreamed of creating. But he was too keenly alive to be satisfied for long with such fantasies. He wearied of an illusory possession. He wished to seize his dreams. How to begin? They seemed to him all equally important. He turned and turned them. He rejected them. He took them up again. No, he never took them up again. They were no longer the same. They were never to be caught twice. They were always changing. They changed in his hands, under his eyes while he was watching them. He must make haste. He could not. He was appalled by the slowness with which he worked. He would have liked to do everything in one day, and he found it horribly difficult to complete the smallest thing. His dreams were passing, and he was passing himself. While he was doing one thing, it worried him not to be doing another. It was as though it was enough to have chosen one of his fine subjects for it to lose all interest for him and so all his riches availed him nothing. His thoughts had life only on condition that he did not tamper with them. Everything that he succeeded in doing was stillborn. It was the torment of Tantalus. Within reach were fruits that became stones as soon as he plucked them, 
Near his lips was a clear stream, which sank away whenever he bent down to drink. To slake his thirst, he tried to sip at the springs that he had conquered, his old compositions. Loathsome in taste! At the first gulp he spat it out again, cursing. What? That tepid water? That insipid music? Was that his music? He read through all his compositions. He was horrified. He understood not a note of them. He could not even understand how he had come to write them. He blushed. Once, after reading through a page more foolish than the rest, he turned round to make sure that there was nobody in the room, and then he went and hid his face in his pillow like a child ashamed. Sometimes they seemed to him so preposterously silly that they were quite funny, and he forgot that they were his own. "'What an idiot!' he would cry, rocking with laughter. But nothing touched him more than those compositions in which he had set out to express his own passionate feelings, the sorrows and joys of love. Then he would bound in his chair as though a fly had stung him. He would thump on the table, beat his head, and roar angrily. He would coarsely apostrophize himself. He would vow himself to be a swine, trebly a scoundrel, a clod, and a clown, a whole litany of denunciation. In the end he would go and stand before his mirror, red with shouting, and then he would take hold of his chin and say, "'Look, look, you scurvy knave, look at the ass-face that is yours. I'll teach you to lie, you blackguard. Water, sir, water.' He would plunge his face into his basin and hold it under water until he was like to choke. When he drew himself up, scarlet, with his eyes starting from his head, snorting like a seal, he would rush to his table. Without bothering to sponge away the water trickling down him, he would seize the unhappy compositions, angrily tear them in pieces, growling, "'There, you beast! There, there, there!' Then he would recover. What exasperated him most in his compositions was their untruth, not a spark of feeling in them, a phraseology got by heart, a schoolboy's rhetoric. He spoke of love like a blind man of color. He spoke of it from hearsay, only repeating the current platitudes. And it was not only love. It was the same with all the passions, which had been used for themes and declamations, and yet he had always tried to be sincere— but it is not enough to wish to be sincere, it is necessary to have the power to be so. And how can a man be so when, as yet, he knows nothing of life? What had revealed the falseness of his work, what had suddenly digged a pit between himself and his past, was the experience which he had had during the last six months of life. He had left fantasy. There was now in him a real standard to which he could bring all the thoughts for judgment as to their truth or untruth. The disgust which his old work, written without passion, roused in him, made him decide with his usual exaggeration that he would write no more until he was forced to write by some passionate need, and leaving the pursuit of his ideas at that, he swore that he would renounce music forever unless creation were imposed upon him in a thunderclap. He made this resolve because he knew quite well that the storm was coming. Thunder falls when it will, and where it will, but there are peaks which attract it. Certain places, certain souls, breed storms. They create them, or draw them from all points of the horizon. 
and certain ages of life, like certain months of the year, are so saturated with electricity that thunderstorms are produced in them, if not at will, at any rate when they are expected. The whole being of a man is taught for it. Often the storm lies brooding for days and days. The pale sky is hung with burning, fleecy clouds. No wind stirs. The still air ferments and seems to boil. The earth lies in a stupor. No sound comes from it. The brain hums feverishly. All nature awaits the explosion of the gathering forces, the thud of the hammer, which is slowly rising to fall back suddenly on the anvil of the clouds. Dark, warm shadows pass. A fiery wind rises through the body. The nerves quiver like leaves. Then silence falls again. The sky goes on, gathering thunder. In such expectancy there is voluptuous anguish. In spite of the discomfort that weighs so heavily upon you, you feel in your veins the fire which is consuming the universe. The soul surfeited boils in the furnace like wine in a vat. Thousands of germs of life and death are in labor in it. What will issue from it? The soul knows not. Like a woman with child it is silent. It gazes in upon itself. It listens anxiously for the stirring in its womb and thinks, What will be born of me? Sometimes such waiting is in vain. The storm passes without breaking. But you wake heavy, cheated, enervated, disheartened. But it is only postponed. The storm will break, if not today, then tomorrow. The longer it is delayed, the more violent will it be. Now it comes. The clouds have come up from all corners of the soul, thick masses, blue and black, torn by the frantic darting of the lightning. They advance heavily, drunkenly, darkening the soul's horizon, blotting out light, an hour of madness, the exasperated elements let loose from the cage in which they are held bound by the laws which hold the balance between the mind and the existence of things, reign, formless and colossal, in the night of consciousness. The soul is in agony. There is no longer the will to live. There is only longing for the end, for the deliverance of death. And suddenly there is lightning. Christophe shouted for joy. Joy, furious joy, the sun that lights up all that is and will be, the godlike joy of creation. There is no joy but in creation. There are no living beings but those who create. All the rest are shadows, hovering over the earth, strangers to life. All the joys of life are the joys of creation, love, genius, action, quickened by flames issuing from one and the same fire. Even those who cannot find a place by the great fireside, the ambitious, the egoists, the sterile sensualists, try to gain warmth in the pale reflections of its light. To create in the region of the body, or in the region of the mind, is to issue from the prison of the body, it is to ride upon the storm of life, it is to be he who is, to create is to triumph over death. Wretched is the sterile creature, that man or that woman who remains alone and lost upon the earth, scanning their withered bodies, and the sight of themselves from which no flame of life will ever leap. Wretched is the soul that does not feel its own fruitfulness, and know itself to be big with life and love, as a tree with blossom in the spring. The world may heap honors and benefits upon such a soul, 
it does but crown a corpse. When Christophe was struck by the flash of lightning, an electric fluid coursed through his body. He trembled under the shock. It was as though on the high seas, in the dark night, he had suddenly sighted land. Or it was as though in a crowd he had gazed into two eyes, saluting him. Often it would happen to him after hours of prostration, when his mind was leaping desperately through the void. But more often still, it came in moments when he was thinking of something else, talking to his mother, or walking through the streets. If he were in the street, a certain human respect kept him from too loudly demonstrating his joy. But if he were at home, nothing could keep him back. He would stamp. He would sound a blare of triumph. His mother knew that well, and she had come to know what it meant. She used to tell Christophe that he was like a hen that has laid an egg. He was permeated with his musical imagination. Sometimes it took shape in an isolated phrase complete in itself. More often it would appear as a nebula enveloping a whole work. The structure of the work, its general lines, could be perceived through a veil, torn asunder here and there by dazzling phrases which stood out from the darkness with the clarity of sculpture. It was only a flash. Sometimes others would come in quick succession. Each lit up other corners of the night. But usually the capricious force, having once shown itself unexpectedly, would disappear again for several days into its mysterious retreats, leaving behind it a luminous ray. This delight in inspiration was so vivid that Christophe was disgusted by everything else. The experienced artist knows that inspiration is rare and that intelligence is left to complete the work of intuition. He puts his ideas under the press and squeezes out of them the last drop of the divine juices that are in them and, if need be, sometimes he does not shrink from diluting them with clear water. Christophe was too young and too sure of himself not to despise such contemptible practices. He dreamed impossibly of producing nothing that was not absolutely spontaneous. If he had not been deliberately blind, he would certainly have seen the absurdity of his aims. No doubt he was at that time in a period of inward abundance, in which there was no gap, no chink through which boredom or emptiness could creep. Everything served as an excuse to his inexhaustible fecundity. Everything that his eyes saw or his ears heard, everything with which he came in contact in his daily life, every look, every word brought forth a crop of dreams. In the boundless heaven of his thoughts he saw circling millions of milky stars, rivers of living light, and yet, even then, there were moments when everything was suddenly blotted out, and although the night could not endure, although he had hardly time to suffer from these long silences of his soul, he did not escape a secret terror of that unknown power which came upon him, left him, came again, and disappeared. How long, this time? Would it ever come again? His pride rejected that thought and said, This force is myself. When it ceases to be, I shall cease to be. I shall kill myself. He never ceased to tremble, but it was only another delight. But if for the moment there was no danger of the spring running dry, Christophe was able already to perceive that it was never enough to fertilize a complete work. Ideas almost always appeared rawly. 
he had painfully to dig them out of the ore, and always they appeared without any sort of sequence, and by fits and starts. To unite them he had to bring to bear on them an element of reflection and deliberation and cold will, which fashioned them into new form. Christophe was too much of an artist not to do so, but he would not accept it. He forced himself to believe that he did no more than transcribe what was within himself, while he was always compelled more or less to transform it so as to make it intelligible. More than that, sometimes he would absolutely forge a meaning for it. However violently the musical idea might come upon him, it would often have been impossible for him to say what it meant. It would come surging up from the depths of life, from far beyond the limits of consciousness, and in that absolutely pure force which eluded common rhythms, consciousness could never recognize in it any of the motives which stirred in it, none of the human feelings which it defines and classifies. Joys, sorrows, they were all merged in one single passion which was unintelligible, because it was above the intelligence, and yet, whether it understood or no, the intelligence needed to give a name to this form, to bind it down to one or other of the structures of logic which man is forever building indefatigably in the hive of his brain. So Christophe convinced himself, he wished to do so, that the obscure power that moved him had an exact meaning, and that its meaning was in accordance with his will. His free instinct risen from the unconscious depths, was willingly forced to plod on under the yoke of reason with perfectly clear ideas which had nothing at all in common with it. And work so produced was no more than a lying juxtaposition of one of those great subjects that Christophe's mind had marked out for itself, and those wild forces which had an altogether different meaning, unknown to himself. End of section 37